Bible too. And we think it's possible that he was part of the Essene community. Some of their practices were similar to what is described in the life of John. Baptism, a simple life, living off the land in a simple way. And so you could kind of hear from what you'll hear in a little bit that, yes, he wore clothes that perhaps he made himself out of camel's hair. He, uh, he ate locusts, that's simple, a lot of protein in there. Uh, he, he ate wild honey. I just watched uh, Bear Grylls. You ever watch Bear Grylls, Man Versus Wild? And he was in Arizona. And it's a bit staged. They're honest about it. They stage a lot of this stuff. But he shows you how to survive. If you get dropped in the middle of nowhere, how to survive for a week. And he caught a, he caught a scorpion. He's like, oh, there's a scorpion. He took out his knife. And he's like, let's just cut the tail off, because that's where all the poison is. And he grabs this thing. And it's still mad. And it's like this. And, and he's like, He's like, I got to be quick because those pinchers will get my tongue. And so he just goes, I, like that. And he bites the pinchers off first and he eats those. And then now that it's been fully, you know, neutered, this thing, and then he puts the whole thing in his mouth and eats it. And I was like, whoa, I would not do that. Not in a million years. If it was like between living and dying, I'm not, I'm not going to eat the scorpion. But they're full of protein. Just like locusts, right? So John the Baptist knew what he was doing. This really rings true. If you want to live in the wilderness, you eat what you find and you make your clothes out of what you can find. And uh, Craig, you told me once that Bear is maybe, is he a Christian? Is he a believer? That's awesome. Yeah, so you could watch the show. It's a bit crazy. Um, Yeah. He, he, He got some wet sand and put in his sock and he wrung it out and drank it and you know, I was like, I would not do that either. It was just, I would, th- I would just die. Anyways, w- the show he did was in Arizona. It was like mile, just a few miles from where I grew up. Was, that's why I was so interested in, in watching it. So he lived, John the Baptist, going back to him, uh, had the simple life in the wilderness. And I think what else he had going for him was he didn't have the distractions of regular life. And that was part of that Essene community. They lived apart. Most of them were unmarried, although some of them actually were married, it turns out. But being married kind of lends some complexity to your life. And they, they had a simple life. They, they lived off the land. They, they baptized themselves. They bathed every day. They had a ritual for joining the community that looked a lot like the baptism that John was doing in the Jordan River. And they, they had their own teachings. They spent a lot of time copying manuscripts, reading their manuscripts. And so the manuscripts that they left us are this treasure trove of not just biblical um, material, but extra, what we call extra biblical material. You can go to Israel now and you can find a scroll of Isaiah that's in a, in a special museum that they found at uh, the Qumran community, the Essene community. It's the entire book of Isaiah. And as one giant scroll, it's, it's like 100 feet long if you were to unroll the whole thing. It was, it's like the find of the century. So we have a lot to thank the Essenes for. One thing that I want us to be thinking about is that we, not, we sometimes need people like John to speak into our lives because they can see things that we can't. We're so stuck in our own lives, we're so stuck in our own routines that we can't see the forest for the trees. We're just, we can only see what's right in front of us. But somebody from the outside who doesn't have our cares and our worries, they may not understand everything we're going to, but they can see some things that we can't.
And so I think John does this for the people at just the right time to prepare them for Jesus. He can speak a word of prophetic truth into the society that he's in because he lives outside it. He's not immersed in it. The interesting thing is that later on, Jesus does immerse himself in society. He becomes engaged with people, but he's the son of God. And so he can both speak from outside the community and within the community at the same time. That's something that John probably can't do. And John acknowledges that. Jesus can do things that John cannot do. And John is simply preparing the way for him. Now, as we read, and we're about to read, listen for some strange travel companions. This is going to come up a little bit later. There's two groups of people that seemingly travel together, or at least they're addressed together by John. And their names come up together often, but they're extremely different people. So listen for that, because we're going to develop that a little bit too. Let's go to our reading, Matthew 3, 1 through 12. It reads like this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. And saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the, in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones... God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to, you probably caught these strange sort of travel companions. I'm talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I think one group we know a little bit more about, that's the Pharisees. They're more often mentioned, actually, than the Sadducees. Um, but the Sad and the Sadducees, it turns out, not much is known about them. So I want to give you a two-minute crash course in Sadducees. This is going to be fun. It's, it's kind of relevant. Um, we don't know that much about them. They're, they're mentioned in other works besides the Scriptures, but not much, only to a small degree. And also... Outside of the scriptures, when they are mentioned, it's generally in a negative way, okay? They're thought to be from a school of religious thinking from Zadok the priest. And so Zadok, Sadducees, you kind of sense that maybe that name comes from uh, similar, that they're named, named after Zadok the priest. Um, the most sort of 
striking thing about what they believed, and you may remember this, is that they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in any kind of life after death, and thus they did not believe in any kind of judgment on a person after they died. And so for them, it was uh, important to follow the law. It was important to be a good person, but at the end, you just died. And so being a good person had its own blessings, but they were just for themselves. There was no hope of reward or punishment afterwards. They also had somewhat of a narrower scope of what they thought the law was. The Pharisees had the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, but they also had the teachings and the prophets, and so that, that was a sort of a larger corpus of beliefs, and also probably rabbinical writings that existed around, around and alongside the scriptures. And it's likely that the Sadducees only really cared the most about the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, right, the Torah. And so there was a difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about what was authoritative. And that actually leads to big differences between people about what our authority is. Um, if Jesus had to pick a side, and he didn't often, he would more likely be on the side of the Pharisees. Why? Because he <laughs> believes in the resurrection. And for him, Scripture was more than just the Pentateuch. And same with the Apostle Paul, who himself was a Pharisee. He quotes all sorts of scriptures, not just the Pentateuch. But Jesus and John have harsh words for both Pharisees and Sadducees. Now here's one aspect that uh, I think is very important, is that the high priest at the time, if you can read about this in Acts chapter 15, the high priest of the temple was a Sadducee. And that's an important detail that I think John knew, all the people knew. To be the high priest of the temple meant that you had somehow cooperated with the Roman authorities to get that position. They weren't going to just give that one away for free. There was a system known as patronage, uh, sort of the patron-client relationship in the Roman world, which is sort of like this, if you had a really good back scratcher. is You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And this goes in terms of money and favors and also of honor. And so I'll say good things about you, and then you'll say good things about me. I'll give you the things that I can give you. You give me the things that you can give me. And so the, uh, the, Romans, the Romans paid for the temple that Herod built. He was very smart. He got the Roman emperor to pay for a temple, which was expensive. It was actually one of the wonders of the world at the time. The Romans didn't just let anyone be the high priest of that temple that they paid for, right? They're like, no, we're going to put our people in. We're not going to build this thing and then let you guys just do what you want with it. It doesn't work that way. Too much money went into this. And so to be the high priest of the temple meant that you had to scratch the Romans back because that was them scratching your back. And if a Sadducee was the, the high priest, that meant that the whole class of people were under some suspicion by the general population that, yeah, they get to be the high priest, they get to run the worship at the temple, they're allowed to light all the candles and do all the things and wear all the robes, but they're kind of compromised because they gave in on this level. They gave in to the Romans, and so we don't, we don't really trust them. And that was definitely something that the Pharisees probably never hesitated to remind people of. These people didn't like each other. 
They had different views of the afterlife. They had different views of the law. And in this particular case, the Pharisees were far more dear to the people than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were seen as, as sellouts and traitors, really, on some level. But they controlled the temple, and so you kind of had to be nice to them. It's kind of like a relative that maybe has a lot of money and you don't want to you know, get written out of their will, but you don't really like them. And so this is, everybody has this problem, don't you? I'm kidding. Just think of like a mystery novel or something like that. You kind of have to be nice to them, but you don't really like them. They have something you need, and so that's probably how the, they, they thought of the Sadducees. The Pharisees, I think we understand maybe a little more straightforward, is that they had this very high view of the law. They wanted to know the law in its, in its entirety. They practiced it. They memorized it. The problem, and not all of that was great, but the problem was, it seems, and this is a bit of a caricature because there were some very sincere Pharisees, as we know from the scriptures, who actually came to Jesus and were enlightened by Jesus. But some Pharisees thought, it seems, and the Apostle Paul tells us this, that not only did they know the law, they thought that they were able to pretty much keep it. And that that keeping it would give them some reward in the afterlife, which they did believe in. So we have these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, coming out to John in, in, at the Jordan where he's baptizing. And um, why did they come? This is an important question. Um, take a look at verse 5. Um, and verse 6. I'll just read it again. It said, People went out to John from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. So we'll stop right there. This is a large area. This is a pretty large area. It's not massive, you know, it's, it's maybe around the size of the peninsula that we're on right now. I mean, that's, that's a rough estimate. So what does that mean? If they wanted to travel to see John from Jerusalem, they could probably make the trip in one day. If they left early, and they walked all down in, in the cool of the day. They could make it down there. They could, they'd have enough time to, to listen to John and get baptized. And if they walked back, it's a rough, it's, it's a, quite a climb because the Jordan River at that point is actually below sea level. And they could climb back. And in the course of one day, it'd be a long, exhausting day, but they could make the trip in one day. And other parts of this region, it, it's, it's, it's far enough where you could maybe make, make the walk in one day, but it's not a small region. People were going out from Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of the Jordan to see John. He was the new teacher in town. There was something about him that was sort of drawing the crowds, right? He was a big act, you know? He had a headline somewhere, right? Um, in, in reality, though, he would have put his name below, below Jesus' on the marquee, but they didn't know about Jesus yet. And Jesus, Jesus and John have their moment together at the Jordan. And so, verse 6 says that the people who came out were confessing their sins so that they could be baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John explains what this baptism means here, and we kind of understand it, that it's a baptism of repentance, it's a baptism of forgiveness. It's symbolic of this washing. It's a symbolic of a, new, of a kind of a desire to turn around and to turn towards God, but it's not the same as the baptism that Jesus brings. John makes that clear later on in our passage. Now, do we suppose, I think, 
the question is, do we suppose that the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to be baptized by John? Very unlikely. Very unlikely. If he indeed was one of the Essenes, they didn't really have much regard for them. But also, here's a guy, well, look at him. He's eating bugs, right? We're not going to be washed by this man. That's just, we're, so why are they there? They're there because the people are there. They're there to sort of kick the tires. What's going on out here? What's the draw? What's happening here? We want to we see if this is a potential threat that we need to deal with. And what's so interesting is when there's a threat, people who don't like each other, they kind of become friends for a short season, right? And they're like, let's, let's address this threat named John the Baptist together for now. Let's put down our pitchforks, you know, for a moment. And then when we've dealt with him, we can go back to fighting the way we used to be. And so there's nothing like a common enemy to unite some people who don't like each other very much. And John, I think, knows all of this. Like, why are you here? Why are you here? You don't seem to be here for the same reason as everyone else here. These people are coming here because they feel lost, because they want to be washed. They want to turn towards God. There's something, some spark that has caught on where they said, I want to change. I want something new in my life. But you're not here for that. I can tell. I think anybody could have told. Even the people, you don't have to be John the Baptist to have figured that out. And so um, he proves them right. He really is a threat to them. He starts to insult them from the first second he sees them, right? He says, you brood of vipers. I'm not going to go into it, but that's, that's uh, them's fighting words, right? That's not good. Uh, comparing somebody to a snake, not good. Or the sons or the children of snakes, actually, right? This is not good. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, but you should produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so John is, John is preaching baptism for the forgiveness of sins. People are coming to him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to watch the whole spectacle and maybe hoping that they'll blend into the background, but John won't let them. John has a prophetic word, and this is where, where somebody else can speak in to a system that we have because they're not part of it, and they can speak some truth to it in a prophetic way. Um, and so just to kind of re re recap, if there was a system the Pharisees had, it was an over-reliance on the law and an inflated view of their ability to keep it. That's what the Pharisees were kind of stuck in. The Sadducees had connections and religious power, and they had an inside track with the Romans, and that was going to keep them safe. That was going to keep them uh, uh, continuing to, to have this place of authority and privilege in the temple. And John sees right through all that right away, and he, he, he just attacks. He attacks them. So um, I want to talk about what it, what it is here that we, what the people are doing. They're coming to the, the river, they're going in the water, they're listening to what John has to say, and he has more to say here, right? But um, I want us to think about our, our systems. 
what is it, so for example, like, the, like I said, the, the, the Pharisees had their system, we can keep the law. The Sadducees had their system, we have our connections. But we have our systems, right? As people, we have our systems. We come to the Jordan and we have these things that think, we think will keep us immune to needing to repent, needing to change. Um, we have possessions, we have connections, we have accomplishments, we have our own righteousness, we even have knowledge. I'll give you an example of this. It, it's funny, the, the things that slip out of us kind of really tell us a lot about ourselves. And so I know I've told this story before, but some of you haven't heard it, and I think it's very funny because it's at my expense, so that's even doubly funny, is that when I was living in Norway, I was the, I was the, inter, I was the intern pastor at the Norwegian at the American church in Oslo, it was a Lutheran church. And that was my internship year. And uh, we had a young people's group, a wonderful young woman from South Africa, her name was Jeanette. She was kind of one of these people that just sort of told it like she saw it. She was kind of like John the Baptist in some ways. And, and for some reason, it's like what slips out of you when you're not really paying attention, it really says a lot about you. And so often, and I don't know why this happened, because I was the, past, I was the intern, intern pastor at the church, but often when you know, new people would come, uh, I would say, I'm Hans Eric. I used to work for IBM. I, I don't know why I said that. It just came out of me. Like, this was something good, you know, like, and it's not anymore. Well, IBM is still a very nice company, but, you know, it's kind of, it's like, if I were to say I work at Google or Apple, it probably has a little more cachet, or Hewlett Packard or something like that. But IBM has fallen. But back then, IBM was like, kind of, that's good. And so for some reason, like often, it just kind of slipped out. When, why was I doing this? It's a very interesting question. Like, this is a little bit of who I am. This is a little bit of how I value myself. And um, then one time, we met some new people where we were making introductions in a, in a Bible study. And Jeanette, before I could say anything, said, this is Hans Eric. He used to work for IBM. And I was like, ah, you know, thank you, Jeanette. Thank you for sort of poking me like John the Baptist and saying, get over yourself. Stop dropping that name, which is so funny. Why was I doing that? It's like, then I was like, I stopped doing it from that day on. I was like, okay, that was dumb. That was a little bit of Conceric puffing himself up. And I don't know what it was. Like, I used to be an engineer. Now I'm a pastor. Isn't that kind of cool? I don't know what. Um, and so thank you, Jeanette. Thank you for this outsider who kind of punctures all these things that we do so to make ourselves sufficient in ourselves so that we don't need God, right? It's really powerful. And we all do this. I'm not going to probe into your life right now, but you know we have a lot of wealth in this country that can insulate us from, from insecurity, that can insulate us from want or need. We have we have friends, we have networks, we have family, which is all great. We have accomplishments that we can rest on. If, you're, if you grew up in the church like I did, you kind of was built into you that you have to look good. You have to kind of have this bank of righteousness that you can kind of draw on because people think you're a good person. And when actually you're not, you're not. Even your knowledge of who God is, you can kind of rest on that lore. Like, well, I know a lot about this. Well, you know what? Those are all important things, but all of them can kind of become idols to us. They're the kinds of things that would make us observers at the Jordan rather than going under the water ourselves.
And I think I've learned that I don't want to be an observer. I don't want to just watch other people repent and have a new life. I want to kind of let go of my Pharisee stuff and my Sadducee stuff and my IBM stuff and whatever else I have and say, you know what? That's really not going to last. And that's what John says. These are trees that do not produce fruit. They produce a little fruit right now. They get you through life, but only in sort of a, a weak way. This is chaff. It's not wheat. It's going to burn. So the trees that don't produce fruit are going to be cut down, and the chaff is going to be separated from the wheat, and the wheat's going to be gathered up on the threshing floor, and it's going to be kept and put in storage, and it's going to nourish people, but the chaff is going to be gathered up, and it's going to be turned into fire. And that's what he's saying. And so part of preparation in Advent, I think, and especially on a week like this, is before Jesus can come as a little baby, before Jesus can come at the end of time, we need to do our own work on ourselves and get rid of our systems, get rid of our insulation, get rid of all these things that we use to prop ourselves up, get rid of all the things that slip out of us and kind of reveal who we really are, and go under the water. And going under the water is like dying, isn't it? Right? That's the symbolism of it completely, is you go under and you die. And that all that other stuff, it dies there and it gets washed away in the river. It just carries it away to somewhere else. It actually carries it to the Dead Sea. Isn't that interesting? It carries all that away to the Dead Sea and it dies there and it's dead, it's buried there. And you're raised up new as a new person who's turned away from the old life and has turned towards God, has repented in the truest sense of the word. And I'm not necessarily talking about sin, although it is sin, to put my hope in all these other things. I'm just talking about my orientation in life. Am I doing the things in life that produce fruit? Are these things, where do I spend my time and my energy and my treasure? Look at your checkbook and figure out what you've been spending money on. Look at your calendar and see where you've been spending your time. I'm not saying any of it's wrong, okay? That's for you to figure out. But you can at least look at those things. Where have I been spending my time, my energy, my treasure? Has it been things that have been fruitful? Has it been things that have given growth? Or has it been things that I've been using to prop up my own system? So how much energy do I want to put into those other things? This is what I've come to, is I need to let it all go. Now, uh, I'm not going to have a yard sale this afternoon and get rid of all my stuff, although very tempting, super tempting, actually, right? Um, I'm not going to quit my job because, you know, I feel like God has called me here, so that's good. I feel like I'm doing, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm in the right place. Um, I'm not going to move to another country, but even in my own life, I see every day there's choices that I make. Is this something that bears fruit? Is this something that is nourishing to the world, or is it not? Can I let go of those things? Let them die. Can I be reborn in the river and come up a new person? 
And what's beautiful is the Spirit does this. I really think the Spirit does this. John says, someone's coming after me. I can't even carry his sandals. I can't even do that for him. He's going to baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. He's going to burn away all the impurities, and he's going to present you as new and whole. And, and as this solitary, focused individual towards God. And that's the Spirit's work. So I, I, I'm laying this on us. I'm laying it on ourselves. But I also want to tell you that the Spirit will do this with you. All right? This isn't all about your own effort. Because then it's just another law. Then we're just Pharisees all over again. But we open our heart to the Spirit to move through us and to burn away things that don't belong and to carry us along with a power that we don't have. And the Spirit will do that. God's going to take all the pieces that we have left behind us and he's going to pick them up and put them together in a way that pleases him, that takes care of us too. And we're not going to have to drop names. We're not going to have to do all these other things. God will take care of us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. I pray, Lord, this Sunday, but all of Advent and all of life, that we continue to prepare ourselves for the coming of your Son by repenting, by asking ourselves what's fruitful in our lives, by submitting all these things to you so that we might be reborn in you. And Lord, bless the rest of this service, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to invite the offering to be taken by our ushers.